there is a school of thought in which you can be a so-called carnal Christian. In which you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. In which you can be a friend of the world, but pray a sinner's prayer and be okay. This way of thinking leaves out half of Jesus' first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus didn't say merely, believe in the Gospel, but repent and believe in the Gospel. The omission of repentance doesn't more purely preserve a Gospel of grace as the advocates of a system like that try to claim. Rather, it distorts what it means to truly and to savingly believe in Christ Jesus. That way of thinking distorts what it means to truly, savingly believe in Jesus. And so it sends many to hell with false assurance. As Luther famously and correctly quipped, we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. It's not our righteousness achieved by our repentance from our sins which saves us. It's not our righteousness achieved by our repentance from our sins that becomes the legal basis upon which God justifies us. The saving righteousness for all who are ever saved is the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. But mark my words. You have never laid hold of Christ's righteousness by faith, unless there is repentance alongside your supposed faith. Because true, genuine, saving faith doesn't disrespect Jesus by, by telling Him that you want Him as Savior but not as Lord. The true faith that saves doesn't want a little bit of Jesus only enough to get you into heaven. The true faith that saves is the faith that, faith that looks upon the face of Jesus Christ and sees the glory of God there. It's the faith that arises out of a regenerate nature, out of a nature that has been born again, that is no longer dead in trespasses and sins, but has been made alive. It is faith which arises from a nature that hungers and thirsts now in its renewed state for righteousness. And so true saving faith looks to Jesus and lays hold of His righteousness by faith. And that righteousness of Christ becomes the sole merit upon which God looks and counts us as righteous. 
But that faith which looks at Jesus and sees in Him the glory of God. That faith is always accompanied by repentance. If your life then, if your life then is not marked by repentance and the inevitable and attending holiness, then you may be sure that you don't have Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. Here's the big idea of tonight's message, which I'm going to draw out of the events of Esau's life as recorded for us in Scripture. There is great danger in being a so-called carnal Christian. There is great danger in being what we might otherwise call a cultural Christian. One who professes a relationship with Christ Jesus. But the repentance, the holiness that ought to characterize us as Christians is nowhere to be found. There is great danger in being that kind of so-called Christian. And you need to repent if you are that kind of Christian. You need to repent before it's too late. Let's begin by reviewing Esau's story. Primarily two major events that occur prior to Genesis 28. And they're the events that I just read. The first is the sale of the birthright. Esau's sale of his birthright to his brother Jacob. We remember that Esau came in hungry. Probably at the point of truly and genuinely needing some sustenance. As opposed to merely wanting some sustenance. It's not that he came home from work and was a little bit peckish and needed a snack. He was really genuinely in need of sustenance. But it's likely that Esau had options. As we discussed when I was preaching on that a number of weeks ago, presumably there was more food in the wealthy man Isaac's tents than simply this stew that Jacob was cooking. But Esau fixated on the red stew. He's thinking with his eyes instead of with his head. And as Job says in Job 31 and verse 7, his heart has gone after his eyes. He won't accept alternatives. Not the birthright of inestimably greater value, nor even alternative meals. Esau has to have that red stew. And so he sells his birthright in exchange for it. That's the first event that needs to be in our mind. The second event that needs to be in our mind as we come to our passage tonight is his loss of the blessing. Now his loss of the blessing should have been a logical consequence from his sale of the birthright to his brother. Really, Isaac should have been intending to bless Jacob. 
Because the birthright was now Jacob's. It was by right Jacob's. It's, after all, the birthright. After that sale, Isaac really should have been intending to bless Jacob. But we saw when I preached on that section a few weeks back that Isaac wrongly was still intending to bless his favorite son, Esau. This doesn't justify, however, Jacob's deception. Jacob did wrong in that passage. He went in and he deceived his vulnerable, aging father. And he deceived, of course, his brother at the same time. Swindled him out of the birthright that Isaac, or pardon me, the blessing that Isaac intended to confer upon Esau. Just as Jacob's walking out, we read, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Esau walks in to receive his blessing and finds that it's gone. It's no longer available to him. He pleads with his father for a blessing. He pleads with tears. Chapter 27 and verse 38 tells us. And our passage tonight, Genesis 28, 6-9, comes on the heels of and within the context of those events. It's not hard to understand what's happening here, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with exposition. We're going to focus most of our time on application. What does this mean for us? But let's look briefly at these few verses before us. Genesis 28, 6 to 9. Let's examine this scene before us with that context in our minds. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is a pathetic scene. And by pathetic, I mean one of the dictionary definitions of it. Having a capacity to move one to compassionate pity. It's the kind of thing that might make a Bajan say, Kadir. <laughs> Esau notices... Esau notices how Isaac looks favorably on the possibility of marrying a foreign woman instead of a Canaanite. He notices how Jacob pleases Isaac by going to get a wife from somewhere else. Esau, a grown man, watches as his brother Jacob, also a grown man, obtains some favor from his father by going to seek a wife from another land instead of taking a wife from among the Canaanites.
And in what appears to be a last-ditch attempt to get some kind of approval from his father, which might yet, at the eleventh hour, lead to some kind of blessing, Esau goes and takes a wife who is not a Canaanite in order that he might please his father. And what good does it do? What changes as a result of this attempt? Nothing. Poor Esau remains without his birthright and without his blessing. Does Jacob even notice? Or pardon me, does Isaac even notice? Does he look favorably upon this last attempt of Esau to curry some favor with the old man? We're not told. But it certainly doesn't reverse the course of what has already transpired. Jacob is gone, and Jacob is gone with the birthright and the attendant blessing. And Esau now has two Canaanite wives and one who is not. It really is a pitiable scene. It's just too late for Esau. Too little, too late. It's obvious that he regrets now selling his birthright to Jacob. It's obvious that he wishes he could have the blessing. It's obvious that he's willing to try anything that holds out even an outside possibility that maybe still, maybe still he can get the birthright. Maybe still he can get the blessing. What are we to make of this? What does this teach us? This is what it teaches us. Repent before it's too late. I'm going to unpack that. But this is what Hebrews 12:17 does with this whole narrative. We we touched on this a few weeks ago when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. We're coming at a similar idea from a slightly different angle tonight. Hebrews 12:17 says, "You know that afterward when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected." For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. As I've said before, many wrongly interpret this as a warning about an event that may happen in your lifetime. That one day you'll want to come to Christ, but you won't be able to, and He won't have you. Well, that's, a, that's not a correct interpretation of this verse. If only for the statement of Jesus himself who said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one needs to fear today that they're in that position of Esau who found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Jesus calls to all and sundry, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is a day... That will be too late, however. But it's the day that they put you in the ground. 
So certainly, certainly, self-professed unbelievers should repent before it's too late. There will be a day when it's too late. When the, that bell tolls and it's all over. They put you in the ground. It's too late. Unbelievers, professed, self-professed, self-conscious unbelievers certainly should turn away from their sins and place faith in Christ Jesus who alone can save sinners. Certainly that is one application of the idea that there is such a thing as it being too late to repent. However, in Hebrews 12, it's not actually self-professed, self-conscious unbelievers who are in view. In Hebrews 12, it's professing, professing believers. Professing, but false believers who are primarily in view. And they also should repent before it's too late. The context of Hebrews 12 is not the openly unbelieving, but those who claim to be God's people, but are dabbling in sin. Those who are not resisting it. Those who are not fighting it as they ought. Those who are not responding to the Lord's discipline with repentance. And therefore are not walking in the way of the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, as I said at the beginning, this doesn't mean that we need to attain a certain level of holiness in order to be finally saved. Christ's righteousness is our saving righteousness. But the issue... Here in Hebrews 12 is that without a real relationship with Christ, which sets you apart from the world, you will not be saved. Matthew Henry comments on this verse, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Matthew Henry comments that we must not, under pretense of living peaceably with all men, leave the ways of holiness, but cultivate peace in a way of holiness. In other words, if you're telling yourself that you belong to Christ, but you're not walking as one set apart or holy, you will not see the Lord. You're kidding yourself. Without, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We should endeavor to live at peace with everyone inside and outside of the church as much as it depends on us, but not at the expense of being set apart for Christ, not at the expense of being holy. 
We read in James chapter 4 and verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It is those who are professing faith in Christ, but who are living as friends of the world, that the author of Hebrews is cautioning in Hebrews 12. He uses the first person plural. Let us lay aside every weight, Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Then in verse 3 he says, Consider him, that is the others whom he includes in the us, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, he's speaking to professing Christians in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's the implication? You, professing Christians, be trained by the discipline of the Lord. Verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. You see that he's not talking... To those who are self-professed unbelievers. He's not talking to those who know, who are conscious of the fact that they are not Christians. He's writing to Christians and he's instructing them about the Christian life. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And verse 14, strive for peace, professing Christians. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That is no one among you professing Christians. And as he goes on, he talks about Esau. And then he says, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. The point here is not that Esau was what we might call a carnal Christian or a cultural Christian. That's not the point. The point is that just as there was a time when it was too late for Esau, so there will be a time for carnal Christians, for cultural Christians, when it will be too late, too late to have saving dealings with the Christ that you have professed falsely. That's the point. That he's making in Hebrews 12. So repent before it's too late. Certainly, yes. I mean, obviously, 
unbelievers come to Christ. Because when you die, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to be punished for your sin in hell. So unbelievers, hear me loud and clear. You repent before it's too late. But actually, in the line of thought of the author of Hebrews... In chapter 12, this repent, it's too late. This implication of repent before it's too late. In his thinking, the author of Hebrews, he's actually aiming that implication more at those who profess Christianity. But are not being trained by the discipline of the Lord. But are not striving for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those who are not lifting their drooping hands and strengthening their weak knees. Those are the people that he's aiming at. And he's saying, be careful. Because there was a time when it was just too late for Esau. And he found no chance to repent. He was rejected. Even though he sought it with tears. It's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, be careful, carnal Christian. Be careful, cultural Christian. You who are friends with the world, but think that you're okay with God because you pray to sinner's prayer. You who think that you're okay with God because you have an outward form of religiosity. Be careful, because that in and of itself is not what Christianity is. You have a counterfeit. And there will be a point when it will be too late for you to get the real thing. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 22. And it concludes like this in verses 11 to 13. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. I just want to pause there for a moment. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that person who was in without a wedding garment. I want you to put yourself in the position of that person confronted by the king. What would that feel like? Then the king will the king said to the attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth What would that feel like Jesus tells other parables like this in which the door is shut. And there are those outside. And they can't come in. 
this refrain, the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, repeats itself over and over in the Gospels. When you think of Jesus' famous words, Depart from me. I never knew you. There will be a time when it is too late. And you may fumble around for something to say. You may, like Esau, try to make one last ditch effort to somehow get God on your side. Somehow get a blessing. But it's going to turn out for you like it turned out for Esau. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. That ship sailed. The gospel is only good news when you believe it, when you receive it, when you take hold of Christ, really and truly, not with lip service. What do you think your wife or your husband would think if you said, I love you, and then acted in a way that was completely unloving? Would they believe you? Do you take Christ for a fool? That you will tell Him you love Him? And that you receive Him as your Savior? But not as your Lord? Would you mock Christ? The incarnate Son of God? Who came to save His people from their sins? Who suffered once the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God? To whom have been given the keys of death and hell? Would you mock him by saying, I'll have you as Savior, but not as Lord? Would you mock him by saying, I love you and I'm a Christian, but I don't care to be conformed to your image? Biblical Christianity doesn't fool around like that with Christ. All of us are sinners. 1 John 1 makes that clear. All of us are sinners. So being a Christian is not about being sinless. And neither is it, as I said, about attaining a certain level of holiness in ourselves so that we can pass muster with God on the last day. Our saving righteousness is only the righteousness of Christ that we lay hold of by faith. But if you lay hold of that righteousness by faith, it's because you've seen Christ in His glory. And you've taken hold of Him. Not part of Him, but all of Him. He's not, he's not divided. I can't, I can't say... For example, to my wife, I'll, I'll have you as 
my wife, but not as a woman. That doesn't make any sense. She's both. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. It's two titles for the same person, two aspects of the same person. The faith that saves lays hold of the Savior who is the Lord. And the Lord who is the Savior. Biblical Christianity, in biblical Christianity, repentance and faith go hand in hand together. Not that the quality of your repentance saves you or even the quality of your faith saves you. It's the quality of Christ's merit and His works that save you. Those are received by faith. But there's always repentance where there's real, biblical, true, saving faith. So the warning that the author of Hebrews draws from Esau's life is this. Be careful of being a cultural Christian. Be careful of being a carnal Christian. Be careful of being one who is not trained by the discipline of the Lord, who doesn't fix his eyes on Jesus and run with endurance the race set before, who doesn't lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees, who doesn't strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Be careful of being a so-called Christian like that, because that's no Christianity at all. And just like there was a time when it was too late for Esau to repent, so there will be a time when it's too late for so-called Christians like that to repent. Tonight then, Look at your own heart and take stock. Is there genuine, saving faith? That faith that looks at Jesus and sees a spotless lamb, a perfect man, with no moral blemish, who has answered in his life, the just demands of God's law? Is there in your heart a faith in Christ as the Lamb of God, that spotless Lamb, slain on Calvary, bearing the wrath of God that you deserved? For your sins. Is there in your heart a faith that looks on Jesus not as a dead, long dead, long decomposed peasant lying in a grave somewhere in Israel? But is there in your heart a faith that looks on him as a resurrected Savior? always lives now who has ascended 
and is there as a priest at God's right hand, always living to make intercession for you. And is there in your heart a faith which looks at that Christ as a king? Whom heaven must receive. Until that day when he returns to consummate his rule and reign. To destroy that last enemy, death. Is is there in your heart a faith that beholds Christ in all, in all of His glory? Not a truncated Christ, not a divided Christ. But is there in your heart a faith that looks on Christ in all His glory? In each of the aspects of His work? And lays hold of all of Him? seeks to run that that race with endurance looking to Him. That seeks to be trained by the Father's discipline. That seeks day by day to strive after that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That seeks to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Is there in your heart that kind of faith? If so, brothers and sisters, be comforted. For you're not Esau, but Jacob. You have obtained the blessing. If Christ is yours, then all is yours in Him. But if there is not that kind of faith in your heart, if you know that you're playing games, if you know that you are not looking on Christ with that kind of faith, you know that your Christianity is Cultural. You do it because what would people think of you if you did it? Or you consider yourself, you've been maybe poorly taught. Someone has lied to you that because you prayed a prayer a long time ago, you're okay. Never mind how you live. Never mind the direction of your heart orientation, whether it be toward Christ or not. And so you are what we might call a carnal Christian. If you're in that kind of category, cultural, carnal Christian, whatever you want to call it, repent before it's too late. And let me assure you, after speaking so soberly and so sternly, Let me assure you, as I did at the beginning, that if you repent, Christ will have you. And if you're living and breathing 
you're not in that category yet that Esau was in where it was too late to repent though he sought it with tears come to Jesus even tonight he will have you he said whoever comes to me I will never cast out so come to Jesus